So without further ado, I will call on Dr. Craig to speak for 20 minutes to begin the debate. Dr. Craig. Thank you very much. I want to begin by thanking Campus Crusade for Christ for inviting me to participate in tonight's debate. The issues that we're going to be raising this evening are some of the most important questions that a person can ask, and it's my hope that tonight will be a significant step forward in your own personal spiritual journey. Now, in raising the question of whether or not God exists, we need to conduct our inquiry according to the basic rules of logic which govern all of rational thought. Emotional appeals or sarcasm have no place in tonight's debate. Accordingly, we need to ask ourselves two fundamental questions. Are there good reasons to think that God exists? And secondly, are there good reasons to think that God does not exist? Now, with respect to that second question, I'll leave it up to Ron Barrier to present the reasons as to why he thinks that God does not exist. But in my opening speech, I want to focus on the first question. What good reasons are there to think that God does exist? And tonight, I'm going to present five reasons why I think that theism, the view that God exists, is more plausibly true than atheism, the view that God does not. Now, whole books have been written on each one of these, and therefore, in my brief time, I can only present a sketch of each argument and then perhaps go into more detail as Ron responds to them. So, number one, then, the origin of the universe. Have you ever asked yourself why the universe exists rather than just nothing? Why anything at all exists? Have you ever asked yourself where the universe came from? Well, typically atheists have said that the universe is just eternal and uncaused. But is that a plausible position? Just think about it for a minute. If the universe never had a beginning, then that means that the number of events in the past history of the universe is infinite. But mathematicians recognize that the existence of an actually infinite number of things leads to self-contradictions. For example, what is infinity minus infinity? Well, mathematically you get self-contradictory answers. This shows that infinity is just an idea in your mind, not something that exists in reality. David Hilbert, perhaps the greatest mathematician of this past century, states, the infinite is nowhere to be found in reality. It neither exists in nature nor provides a legitimate basis for rational thought. The role that remains for the infinite to play is solely that of an idea. But that entails that since past events are not just ideas, but are real, the number of past events must be finite. Therefore, the series of past events cannot go back forever. Rather, the universe must have begun to exist. Now, this conclusion has been confirmed by remarkable discoveries in astronomy and astrophysics. The astrophysical evidence indicates that the universe began to exist in a cataclysmic explosion called the Big Bang about 15 billion years ago. Most people don't understand that according to the Big Bang theory, 
Not only were all matter and energy created in that event, but physical space and time themselves. Therefore, as the Cambridge uh, astronomer Fred Hoyle points out, the Big Bang Theory requires the creation of the universe from nothing. This is because as you go back in time, you reach a point at which, in Hoyle's words, the universe was shrunk down to nothing at all. Now, over the years, various alternative theories, such as the steady-state theory, the oscillating theory, vacuum fluctuation theories, chaotic inflationary theories, have been proposed in order to avoid this conclusion. But all have failed. Hence, in the words of Stephen Hawking, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Now, this circumstance tends to be very awkward for the atheist. For as Anthony Kenny of Oxford University urges, a proponent of the Big Bang Theory, at least if he is an atheist, must believe that the universe came from nothing and by nothing. But surely that doesn't make sense. Out of nothing, nothing comes. So why does the universe exist instead of just nothing? Where did it come from? There must have been a cause which brought the universe into being. Now, we can summarize our argument thus far as follows. Premise one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Premise two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, from the very nature of the case, as the cause of space and time, this cause must be an uncaused, changeless, timeless, and immaterial being of unimaginable power which created the universe. Moreover, I would argue, it must also be personal. For how else could a timeless cause give rise to a temporal effect like the universe? If the cause were an impersonal set of necessary and sufficient conditions, then the cause could never exist without the effect. If the cause were timelessly present, then the effect must be timelessly present as well. The only way for the cause to be timeless and yet the effect begin to exist in time is for the cause to be a personal agent endowed with freedom of the will who freely chooses to create an effect in time without any prior determining conditions. And thus we are brought not merely to a transcendent cause of the universe, but to its personal creator. Reason number two, the complex order in the universe. During the last 30 years or so, scientists have discovered that the existence of intelligent life depends upon a delicate and complex balance of initial conditions simply given in the Big Bang itself. We now know that life-prohibiting universes are vastly more probable than any life-permitting universe like our own. How much more probable? Well, the answer is that the chances that the universe should be life-permitting are so infinitesimal as to be incomprehensible and incalculable. For example, Stephen Hawking has estimated 
that if the rate of the universe's expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in a hundred thousand million million, the universe would have re-collapsed long ago into a hot fireball. BCW Davies has calculated that the odds against the initial conditions being suitable for later star formation, without which planets could not exist, is one followed by a thousand billion billion zeros, at least. He also estimates that a change in the strength of gravity or of the weak force by only one part in 10 to the 100th power would have prevented a life-permitting universe. There are around 50 such constants and quantities present in the Big Bang which must be fine-tuned in this way if the universe is to permit life. So improbability is added to improbability to improbability until our minds are reeling in incomprehensible numbers. There is no physical reason why these constants and quantities should possess the values they do. The one-time agnostic physicist Paul Davies comments, through my scientific work, I have come to believe more and more strongly that the physical universe is put together with an ingenuity so astonishing that I cannot accept it merely as a brute fact. Similarly, Fred Hoyle remarks, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics. And Robert Jastrow, the head of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, has called this the most powerful evidence for the existence of God ever to come out of science. So, once again, the view that Christian theists have always held that there is an intelligent designer of the universe seems to me to make much more sense than the atheistic view that the universe, when it popped into being, uncaused, out of nothing, just happened to be, by chance, fine-tuned to an incomprehensible precision for the existence of intelligent life. We can summarize this argument as follows. Premise one, the fine-tuning of the initial conditions of the universe is due to either law, chance, or design. Premise two, it is not due to either law or chance. Three, therefore, it is due to design. Reason number three, objective moral values in the world. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Many theists and atheists alike agree on this point. For example, Michael Roos, a philosopher of science at the University of Guelph, explains, morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth, considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, Ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory. Friedrich Nietzsche, the great atheist of the last century, who proclaimed the death of God, understood that the death of God meant the destruction of all meaning and value in life. 
I think that Friedrich Nietzsche was right. But we've got to be very careful here. The question is not, must we believe in God in order to live moral lives? I'm not claiming that we must. Nor is the question, can we recognize objective moral values without believing in God? I certainly think that we can. Rather, the question is, if God does not exist, do objective moral values exist? Like Ruth, I honestly don't see any reason to think that in the absence of God, the herd morality evolved by Homo sapiens is objective. After all, if there is no God, then what's so special about human beings? They're just accidental byproducts of nature, which have evolved relatively recently on an infinitesimal speck of dust called the planet Earth, lost somewhere in a hostile and mindless universe in which are doomed to perish individually and collectively in a relatively short time. On the atheistic view, some action, say rape, may not be socially advantageous, and so in the course of human development has become taboo. But that does absolutely nothing to prove that rape is really wrong. On the atheistic view, there's nothing really wrong with your raping someone. Thus, without God, there is no absolute right and wrong that imposes itself on our conscience. But the problem is that objective values do exist, and deep down, I think we all know it. There's no more reason to deny the objective reality of moral values than the objective reality of the physical world. Actions like rape, cruelty, and child abuse aren't just a socially unacceptable behavior. They're moral abominations. Some things, at least, are really wrong. Similarly, love, equality, and self-sacrifice are really good. Thus, we can summarize this third consideration as follows. Premise one, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Premise two, objective moral values do exist. And therefore, it follows logically and inescapably, three, therefore, God exists. Number four, the historical facts concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, was a remarkable individual. New Testament critics have reached something of a consensus that the historical Jesus came on the scene with an unprecedented sense of divine authority, the authority to stand and speak in God's place. He claimed that in himself the kingdom of God had come, and as visible demonstrations of this fact, he carried out a ministry of miracle working and exorcisms. But the supreme confirmation of his claim was his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then it would seem that we have a divine miracle on our hands, and thus evidence for the existence of God. Now, most people would probably think that the resurrection of Jesus is something you just either believe in by faith, or not. But in fact, there are actually three established facts recognized today by the majority of New Testament historians, which I believe are best explained by the resurrection of Jesus. Fact number one, 
On the Sunday morning following his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. According to Jakob Kramer, an Austrian scholar who has specialized in the study of the resurrection, by far most scholars hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. Fact number two. On separate occasions, different individuals and groups saw appearances of Jesus alive after his death. According to the prominent German New Testament critic Gerhard Ludemann, it may be taken as historically certain that the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. These appearances were witnessed not only by believers, but also by unbelievers, skeptics, and even enemies. Fact number three, the original disciples suddenly came to believe that God had raised Jesus from the dead, despite their having every predisposition to the contrary. You see, Jews had no belief in a dying, much less a rising, Messiah. And Jewish beliefs about the afterlife precluded anyone's rising from the dead prior to the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples suddenly came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to go to their deaths for the truth of that belief. Luke Johnson, a New Testament scholar at Emory University, says some sort of powerful, transformative experience is required to generate the sort of movement earliest Christianity was. And N.T. Wright, an eminent British scholar, concludes, that is why, as an historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty grave behind him. Attempts to explain away these three great facts, like the disciples stole the body or Jesus wasn't really dead, have been universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. The fact is that there just is no plausible naturalistic explanation of these three facts. And therefore, it seems to me that the Christian is amply justified in believing that Jesus rose from the dead and was who he claimed to be. But that entails that God exists. Finally, number five, the immediate experience of God. This isn't really an argument for God's existence. Rather, it's the claim that you can know that God exists wholly apart from arguments, simply by immediately experiencing him. This was the way that people in the Bible knew God. As Professor John Hick explains, God was known to them as a dynamic will, interacting with their own wills, a sheer given reality, as inescapably to be reckoned with as destructive storm and life-giving sunshine. To them, God was not an idea adopted by the mind, but an experiential reality which gave significance to their lives. Now, if this is so, then there's a danger that proofs for God could actually distract our attention from God himself. If you're sincerely seeking God, then God will make his existence evident to you. The Bible promises, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We mustn't so concentrate on the external proofs that we fail to hear the inner voice of God speaking to our own hearts. For those who listen, God becomes an immediate reality in their lives. 
So in conclusion then, we've seen five reasons to think that God does exist. Together, I believe these reasons constitute a powerful, cumulative case for the existence of God. Unless and until we're given better reasons to think that God does not exist, I therefore conclude that theism is the more plausible worldview. And I now call on Mr. Barrier to speak for another 20 minutes. I'd like to say hello to my wife on the internet. Hiya, baby. <laughs> and thank you, Dr. Craig, for your fine comments. Uh, I would like to thank each and every one of you for coming out here tonight. And, uh, obviously, uh, your desire to think and your desire to inquire probably outweighs your desire to be entertained, but I hope we can entertain you also. And I would like to thank Chris Pecklin, the Campus Crusade for Christ, the Student Union, the University of Saskatchewan for making uh, this wonderful event possible. And certainly, um, I am honored uh, to be sharing the same podium with Dr. Craig here this evening. Does God exist is an issue which has afflicted humanity for as long as it first realized it could think. And I use the term afflicted, afflicted intentionally, since it is my contention that this question has caused more misery to more people in every era of human history than any other single idea. It is my experience that Western society and societies worldwide have had to struggle mightily through sheer human effort, through sheer human ingenuity, and mutual human cooperation in order to dispel the cobwebs of mysticism and fantasy, which are the necessary ingredients that make up the world of what I call theistic chaos. Tonight, I hope to present to you a clear presentation and simple. It illustrates the fact that there are very many good reasons to think that atheism is true, and that there are really no good reasons to believe that atheism, uh, that theism is true. Dr. Craig, by virtue of his going first, has cast me the position really now of having to address two issues. Uh, number one, I have to tear down, and I have to disprove his arguments that a God exists, that atheism is true, and that somehow I have to replace that with a working model to demonstrate that atheism is true. This reminds me of Voltaire's response when he was asked, what would he, play, what would he replace religion with? And I'm only paraphrasing, but he said, what? A ravaging creature has killed my family, and you ask me, how should I replace it? What Dr. Craig did this evening was to state what he believes are good reasons a God exists. But he did not, under any circumstance, demonstrate that his position would negate atheism. Thus, he avoids an issue that he requires me to address, and I, gladly and proudly as an atheist, will pick up the gauntlet for this evening. I am compelled, so I am told, to prove or to disprove the existence of a God. I'm sure the claim of a belief in God is very sincere, and Dr. Craig has presented some arguments that may appear to have some force in rebutting atheism's arguments. But yet, when we look at that form of reasoning in a very explicit manner, what he is actually saying is that because there is no disproof of God, therefore God exists. I'm sorry, but I believe this is an erroneous form of reasoning, and it's called the fallacy of the argument from ignorance. Francis W. Dower, one of the foremost proponents of critical thinking, says, and I quote, 
This fallacy, this fallacy may be defined as the one we commit when we are led to accept a claim just because there are no reasons against it or just because it hasn't been disproved. This is, a, 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 to me, a philosophical attempt to try and put the atheists and the theists on equal evidentiary footing. And I don't think that's a very valid argument. Just as I cannot disprove, and I admit so, that a God does not exist, neither can Dr. Craig disprove that leprechauns, werewolves, or the invisible, omnipotent being Glaxon, who, by the way, lives in my garage, and I have a very rewarding uh, relationship with, exists. Dr. Craig would have to explain how the absence of definitive disproof is any stronger an argument for the existence of a god than it is for any randomly chosen mythical creature. And I can't imagine how he could do that. Simply because the existence of a god is conceivable. And I think probably will never be disproved. For I believe that we will never know everything. I think we will always encounter a bubble of ignorance. And no matter what size that bubble of ignorance will be, that bubble of ignorance will be the domain of religion. None of, that, none of these God hypotheses, that, so, so these arguments do not prove that the God hypothesis is true, that the God hypothesis demonstrates any relevancy, nor does it contain any explanatory power. I had originally planned into, into going into what the, the traditional classic definitions of atheism are, but for the most part, I reject them. And I also reject the uh, uh, definitions of atheism that you find in a dictionary. And if you want to, during the question and answer period, we can get into why I do that. Uh, the reason I do, do not accept them is because I find that definitions that lead from atheism to wickedness, as you find in the dictionaries, in no way captures the essence of atheism or naturalism. These are these so-called authoritative sources of the dictionaries and the, and the encyclopedias. When you take their definitions of atheism collectively, it demonstrates, number one, that they are either involved in some conspiracy to discredit those who are in direct opposition to religious suggestion, or two, they are simply ignorant and have a limited thought capacity. Let me make atheism very, very simple for you. Atheism is everything that is natural, everything that is real, and everything that we exist in, and everything, every tool we have in order to relate to one another and this planet Earth. I don't think there will be much disagreement in this room on my statement that everything around us, the air, the water, microbes, birds, the planets, the sun, the solar systems, all the galaxies, these are all made up of matter and energy, natural forces that operate under immutable and personal laws that at least in this point in our intellectual and scientific development can somewhat be measured and observed, and even some implications can be drawn from them. In other words, all of our current reality, as we understand it, as we exist within it, consists of matter and energy reacting to a variety of conflicting forces in such a way as to make life viable. I don't consider that an accident. I consider that a great fortunate occurrence. As far as we can tell, there are no supernatural forces discernibly involved in the everyday natural processes that constitute our daily existence. What we see is what we get. That, my friends, is pure atheism. There are no gods involved. If we don't do it, it doesn't get done. If we don't think about it, it doesn't get thought up. To use a religious metaphor, it's the hand we are dealt. 
and we are forced to play it. And if you do not understand this, if you cannot deal with the reality in front of you and confront it, then you will not possibly survive, and none of us will survive. Atheism derives its concepts from reality. Theism intends to impose concepts on reality. And it is my contention that a philosophy that imposes a concept on reality, is, it invites delusion. So now we have a human being, the theologian, the theist. Here I am living in this very natural world. I'm the atheist. I'm, I'm doing my thing. I'm not worried about gods. And the theist comes along. And he claims, or in fact, rather, he insists at, at, at the expense of some very dire penalties, that the reason for all of this overwhelming abundance of nature and natural forces, which encompasses all of existence, all that we know and all that we don't know, is because somewhere beyond nature, there is an indescribable, incomprehensible, and immaterial environment, which I can only conclude is some sort of supernature. And in this supernature, there exists, but not in the traditional sense of existence, an immaterial superbeing, who for reasons only he, the superbeing, not the theist, okay, even though sometimes uh, that distinction is lost, uh, created everything. Again, presumably, everything does not include the super-being who exists within the supernature in a mutually supportive and uncreated existence. I have a lot of problems with that. The theologian, in effect, has come along and added an affectation, something quite arbitrary to the nature mix. A god. So here I am, this atheist in a very natural world, the theist comes along, throws the god into the mix, and all of a sudden, I'm put in the unavoidable position of having to disprove the theist claim. And even more stunning, if I don't, and if I cannot disprove this god, then it is theism that is true, and the atheist has some sort of moral misgiving, character flaw, or as I heard characterized, a predisposed antipathy to theism. I guess it has never dawned to the theist that maybe the atheist thinks that the theism has a predisposed antipathy to reality. Simply because the existence of a god is conceivable, and I think probably will never be conclusively disproved, does not mean, number one, that the hypothesis is true, number two, it does not demonstrate any relevancy, and number three, it has no explanatory power. So therefore, if a god is not involved in a mix of life, then what remains is atheism. Atheism is a default position. It is a default position that relies on what we learn. There are no supernatural influences. Let's say for a moment that even theism were true, and that god somehow was responsible for initiating everything. So what? What difference does it make? We still have to do the same things we have to do in order to survive. We still have to get up in the morning for work. We still have to pay our bills. We still have to study for our finals. We still have to protect and guard our families, rear and educate our children, provide seek meaningful employment, seek insurance, call a doctor. The fact that theism could be true in no way alters what needs to be done in order to live. To live. And, as long, and we still, no matter if God exists or not, we still rely on one another for everything. And we still live in a delicate environment, and we are still required to maintain this complex and delicate ecosystem, which is our home, this planet Earth. 
theism makes no difference. In my remaining, in remaining uh, few minutes, I'd like to discuss a couple of the arguments that uh, Dr. Craig came up to support his premise of theism, and one of them, of course, is the cosmological argument, or which I call the uncaused cause, first cause, uncaused cause. This argument breezes along on the contention that since all things in the physical universe must have a cause, then we must trace back this causal chain to an uncaused being, not an uncaused event. We, we bypass the event. Let's go right to being. An uncaused being outside of space and time. For this argument to have any semblance of viability, the theist must prove, not assume, that the universe requires a causal explanation. And he must prove that that causal explanation must be self-aware. The theist must play upon a presuppositional paradox that all things must have a cause except one. And voila, the theist knows which one that is. Of course, this is circular logic. If the theist claims that he knows of one uncaused cause, then it is impossible to begin the argument by saying all causes must have a cause. He claims that the atheist position is something from, is, is, is that the universe was created something out of nothing. I don't know about some of these other atheist philosophers or scientists who say that stuff. I, I think they're kind of crazy. Um, since God, the concept of God is immaterial, to me, that is nothing. So it is the theist position that is saying that the physical universe came from nothing. Uh, Dr. Alan Guff of the uh, University, of the, uh, the, uh, he's a, uh, the head cosmologist at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, in describing the Big Bang, and I think this is right, about the explanatory power of science. This was in a recent astronomy uh, magazine. He says, the Big Bang theory proposes no answer at all to the question of what banged, how it banged, or what caused it to bang. So I would think that any... Any, uh, you know, any concept of what caused it. You have to address these questions first before we start getting into not only what caused it, but what caused it also had a personality. And let's suppose just for a minute that Dr. Craig is right. Let's say an uncaused cause kicked off everything. Well, what kind of qualities do we have that we're discussing with this, this God, this uncaused cause? Uh, well, what is his evidence that an uncaused exists? What is his evidence that such an uncause is self-aware? What is his evidence that such an uncause has a plan? Where is the working model which shows an uncause causing anything? Another question, of course, is why should this uncause need a whole army of paid intermediaries to act on its behalf for us? Why does this uncause need us to have tax-free special buildings in order to communicate with it? Why does this uncaused need us to get together on a regular basis to entertain it by offering constant flattery, debasing and humiliating ourselves, and appeasing it so that it doesn't wipe us out? <laughs> if the God really and truly existed, my friends, religion would be an artifact of man's curious, curious history. Religion would be out of business. If there was an objective God, Dr. Craig and I could hold hands and personally relate to, the whole industry of religion would absolutely collapse. The reality of God is religion's death knell. And if we ever discovered such a God, then that would be the end of organized religion. The uncaused argument is preposterous and explains nothing.
the moral argument. We talk about objective moral values, and Dr. Craig says, well, if there is no God, there is no moral values. Well, I take it the other way around. If there was no humans, there'd be no objective moral values. Because who would be there to judge them? Who would be there to make objective choices? What is an objective moral value? Is honesty an objective moral value? I'm being honest. Why am I going to hell for that objective moral value? Is my willingness to go to hell any different than the apostle's willingness to die for the proof that Jesus rose from the dead? No. Is doubt an objective moral value? Not when Psalms 14.1 says that the fool who says in his heart there is no God does corrupt things and he's a worthless, you know, a worthless person, a worthless human being. Actually, history and anthropology, anthropological studies, clearly show that religious morals or theistic values are contingent upon the culture that, they, that holds them. It is all relative. What is moral in one religion could very well be immoral in another religion. What is designed to one theist could be designed to another theist of another religion. They all do the same thing. They all have morals, but they're all in conflict. Let me give you an example of religious morals. The leader of the Sikh religion in the world, S-I-K-H, became the leader of the Sikh religion because he murdered a heretic. Is that a moral way to select a religious leader? Would any of us be become a member of that religion who chooses its leaders based on who they kill? Is the fatwa moral? Is the history of murdering people because they disagree with you moral? If, the, if, if, theistic moral, if, moral, if theistic moral values were objective, I, I, I find that, that that's the wrong train of thought. Dr. Craig brought in the rape argument. I'd like to jump on that for a second. That to imply that somehow atheism would either advocate or support rape is a direct violation of the atheist principle of freedom of conscience and freedom of intellectual, intellectual liberty and physical freedom. If anything, there's a biblical God and there's theism that has justified rape throughout the centuries. In fact, there was a God, it was this theistic God that I supposedly raped a female woman that resulted in his son being born. I know you made this I'm sure that that's not the only thing you're disagreeing with. I'm sure that's not the only one. But the fact of the matter is we do look in the Bible that people raped and pillaged other people and they thought that they were instructed by their God to do so. So to use rape as an argument for theism or against theism, I really think is unfair. In fact, it is human. It is human. Where, where the theism has never been there for women's rights and it's really the human effort to bring the women's rights to the forefront that has helped us address the issue of rape. And if we want to look at rape more recently, we can look at the war on Kosovo in which the Vatican restricted or didn't, didn't allow any of the women who were raped by Serbian troops to receive the morning after pill in order to get rid of this, get rid of this violation of their premise, of their pregnancies. What I'm saying here, and how much time do I have? I'm sorry, I'm down to one minute. What I'm saying is that even if theism is true, it makes no difference on what we have to do in order to live. But I say atheism is not true because it jumps to too many conclusions without explaining everything, anything. He doesn't explain what an uncause is. He doesn't explain the qualities of this God. He doesn't explain the qualities and requirements of religion. 
It is my point that atheism, that theism is an imposition on reality, and atheism derives itself from reality, and therefore, it is atheism that we are compelled to live our lives according to principles of human cooperation and human dignity. Thank you. You'll remember I began my opening speech by saying there were two questions that we needed to address tonight. First, what good reasons are there to think that God exists? And secondly, what good reasons are there to think that God does not exist? Now, you'll notice in Ron's opening speech a conspicuous absence of any evidence for the proposition that God does not exist. Instead, what we heard was a very long explanation of why he should be excused from having to bear the burden of proof to defend the atheistic position. So let's look at that. He said, Dr. Craig, you're saying that because there is no disproof of God, therefore God exists, and that's fallacious. Now, if I reasoned that way, that certainly would be fallacious. But I think you'll realize that wasn't the premise in any of my arguments that I presented in my first speech. Nowhere did I reason that the absence of a disproof of God is a proof for God. In fact, Ron is actually hoist on his own petard here because this is the way he's reasoned. He's reasoned, if there is no proof for God, then that means that atheism is true. And that's clearly just as fallacious for him to do that as it would be if I did. This is recognized by thoughtful atheists. For example, Kai Nielsen, an atheist professor at, uh, at the University of Calgary, atheist professor at Calgary, says this, to show that an argument is invalid or unsound is not to show that the conclusion of the argument is false. All of the proofs of God's existence may fail, but it may still be the case that God exists. In short, to show that the proofs do not work is not enough by itself. It may still be the case that God exists. And therefore, atheists like Professor Nielsen try to give positive disproofs of God's existence but Ron Barrier hasn't been able to do that in tonight's debate. I would also point out that the atheist, American atheist's uh, own literature takes the atheist position. For example, in their pamphlet uh, published in Austin, Texas, entitled We Are Atheists Because, it says on the, on the back, atheism teaches that, and I quote, there is no God to answer prayer. There is no heavenly father. There is no divine guardian of truth, goodness, beauty, and liberty. Those are positive assertions, claims to knowledge, and therefore require justification. Uh, Madeline Murray O'Hare once marked that uh, an agnostic is just an atheist without guts. And what Ron has been defending tonight is really agnosticism. He, he won't shoulder the burden of proof and prove that there is no God. Instead, he's just defending agnosticism, which simply says we don't know if there's a God or not. So I want to invite him again to, to share his uh, share of the burden of proof and to support the proposition that American atheists stand for, that there is no God. Now, he defines atheism as saying that atheism is everything natural. Uh, this is an expression of naturalism rather than atheism, but naturalism, I think, implies atheism because naturalism says that what we see in the world, what is natural, is all there is. And I simply want to ask the question, what reason is there to think that nature is all there is? How do you know that, Ron? If you're going to say that nature is all there is, then you are making a positive assertion of knowledge, and you need to justify that by giving some arguments. 
He said, but look, you're positing an indescribable, incomprehensible being which exists in some non-traditional sense of the word exists. And I have problems with that. I have huge problems with that as well if I were defending such a thing. And I, I don't defend any such thing. I think God is clearly describable, clearly comprehensible. He exists in the same sense in which this chair or podium exists. Uh, and I've tried to get evidence for the specific attributes that I think this uh, supernatural being has. So fundamentally, we've not heard any good reason tonight to think that nature is all there is, that there is no God. Now, what about the arguments, then, that I attempted to give for theism? I gave five such arguments. The first one was based on the origin of the universe. And I argued here, number one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Number two, the universe began to exist. And I gave both a philosophical and scientific argument for that premise. And that leads to the conclusion, therefore, the universe has a cause. And then I unpacked conceptually what it is to be a cause of space and time, and we were able to recover a number of the traditional divine attributes, including that this must be a personal agent endowed with free will. How does Ron respond? Well, he says, what proof is there of the causal premise? Uh, if everything has a cause, then what is God's cause? Notice that's not the first premise. I'm not maintaining everything has a cause, but rather whatever begins to exist has a cause. And the reason that that is plausible is that things just don't pop into being out of nothing. Something that comes into being must have something, some cause that brings it into being. If, if we don't believe that, then every one of us should be worried that right now while we're in this auditorium, a, a horse might have appeared out of nothing in the middle of our dorm room and is now defiling the carpet when, for when we get back. But nobody believes that sort of thing. It, it seems to me we have good uh, uh, inductive evidence as well as uh, uh, metaphysical intuitions that being doesn't come from non-being. He didn't deny the premise that the universe began to exist. He neither attacked my philosophical argument nor my scientific evidence. All he did was read a quotation from the professor at MIT saying that the Big Bang Theory uh, answer does not answer the question what caused it. And that's, of course, precisely my point. Modern science, astrophysics, conducts us to the threshold of creation. But the question what caused it is a meta-scientific question. It's a metaphysical or philosophical question uh, that science is incapable of answering. Paul Davies, in his uh, article, The Birth of the Cosmos, lays out the alternative starkly. He says, what caused the Big Bang? One might consider some supernatural force, some agency beyond space and time as being responsible for the Big Bang. Or one might prefer to regard the Big Bang as an event without a cause. It seems to me that we don't have too much choice, either something outside the physical world or an event without a cause. And I submit that of those two alternatives, the belief in a supernatural agency is far more plausible. Ron says, but if you're saying that the cause of the universe is an immaterial being, that's the same as saying that it's nothing. Not at all. Ron is presupposing materialism there. But he's got to prove materialism if he's going to maintain that there cannot be an immaterial being. In fact, I think we're acquainted with immaterial uh, realities all the time. For example, time itself is an immaterial reality. Time is clearly real, and yet time is not something that is material. So there obviously, I think, are immaterial realities, and I think God is an immaterial person. He says, but is this being personal, self-aware? Yes, I gave an argument. 
I said that the only way you can explain the uh, rise of a temporal effect from an, an eternal timeless cause is for that being to be a personal agent endowed with free will. Let me give a, another argument. The only immaterial entities that we are familiar with uh, in philosophy are either minds or abstract objects, like numbers, properties, propositions, sets, and mathematical objects. But mathematical objects, abstract objects, don't stand in causal relations. Therefore, the origin of the universe cannot be due to some abstract object. It must be due to a mind. And therefore, the cause of the universe is plausibly regarded as a personal, unembodied mind. And that's exactly the position of the theist. So I think this first argument, when you really think about it, when you look into those premises, I find this a very persuasive argument, personally, for the existence of a creator of the universe. It is plausible philosophically. It is logical. Those premises, I think, are clearly more plausible than their negations and it scientifically fits the evidence of current cosmology. And therefore, I'm persuaded that's a, a powerful argument for the existence of God. Ron did not address my second argument, which was the one based on the fine-tuning of the origin of the universe. You remember I said that uh, those initial conditions were either due to law, chance, or design. They couldn't be due plausibly to law or chance. Therefore, there must be a divine designer. My third argument was based on the existence of objective moral values. And here I think he clearly misunderstood the argument. I'm not saying that atheists uh, don't hold to the liberty of, of persons or that they're not against rape. Clearly they, they are and should be. Uh, I would agree with him that if God does not exist, then theistic values are contingent upon culture. Everything would be socio-culturally relative. But what I argue is that if there is no God, then there is no objective standard of right and wrong. Moral values are just the socio-biological spin-offs of human evolution or expressions of personal taste. Why? Well, because on the atheistic view, human beings are just animals. And animals are not moral agents. When a lion kills a zebra, it kills it, but it doesn't murder it. Or when a, a snake uh, steals the, uh, the food from another snake, it, or I, I, I even misuse the word, it takes the food, but it doesn't steal it, properly speaking, because that's a moral category. Animals aren't moral agents. And on the atheistic view, that's all we are. It's just animals. And so I think it's very plausible, and many atheists agree, that if there is no God, then human morality is not objective. There are, there are not objective values. But secondly, I think objective values do exist. Certain things like torturing a child for fun, or ethnic cleansing, or the, the, the crusades, or religious persecution are clearly objectively evil, whereas generosity and self-sacrifice are clearly good, some things at least, are clearly uh, objectively right and wrong. So if you agree with me that there are objective values, then you should agree with me that God exists. The fourth argument was based on the resurrection of Jesus. I look here at the three accepted facts by the majority of New Testament critics today, the empty tomb, the appearances of Jesus, and the sudden origin of Christianity, and said that the best explanation for these facts is the resurrection of Jesus. And Ron has yet to offer any plausible naturalistic explanation of those facts. Finally, the immediate experience of God. Ron asks, well, so what if God exists? Well, I think the fact that you're here tonight shows that you think that this question is important, that it makes a difference, so you wouldn't even be here. Even atheist philosophers like Sartre and Camus 
recognize that the existence of God makes a tremendous difference for mankind. For Sartre and Camus, in the absence of God, life becomes absurd because there is no meaning or objective value to life. By contrast, as Kierkegaard, the existentialist uh, of Denmark, argued, if God does exist, then ultimate human fulfillment is to be found in relation to God and in the eternal life that he offers. So clearly, if God exists, I think it makes a tremendous difference to all of us. And that's why this question is one that simply cannot be ignored. Okay, Dr. Craig continues to insist that I have to disprove a God that has not been demonstrated to exist. And I still say that if you come along with an extraneous claim onto that which is natural, the burden is on you. And as far as nature is concerned, I'll be the first one to admit, I don't know all there is about nature. Sciences, scientists don't know all there is about nature. We don't understand every application of nature in every, in every space throughout the universe. So even to begin to say that we understand nature and that there is a supernature behind it, I think it is a stretch. I think we're, we're jumping to conclusions without, uh, arrive, you know, without even having a firm starting point. Dr. Craig uh, talks about the fine-tuning and the design of the, of the universe, and I, I do have several uh, questions, uh, several arguments, or actually several problems with this whole argument of design and purpose and meaning. Uh, first of all, he says that, of course, God uh, explains the complex order of the universe. Well, that's news to me because I thought that all the uh, nature, all the uh, education we received and that we're finding about, about the complex order of the universe really came from scientific in inquiry, uh, not from the hallowed halls of churches. He also uses the question of odds and indicates that, the, that this odds indicates that because we have a life-sustaining universe, that there are incredible odds that this life-sustaining universe occurs. And that there are somehow, and I don't know how this is achieved, that the chances of a non-life-sustaining uh, universe are greater than a life-sustaining one. I don't know, because this is the only universe I know, and it does sustain life. And it would still sustain life, even if humans were not here to describe it. Uh, odds indicates probability. Uh, no matter what the odds, uh, odds do not imply intent. So even if there were astronomical odds for this universe to be exactly the way it is, that in no way implies that it has purpose or intent. Um, <coughs> Richard Feynman, who actually is one of my heroes, uh, says that one cannot verify an idea using the same data that suggested the idea in the first place. Simply because a human being has, has discovered, or has, at least feels that he has discovered design in the universe, does not automatically verify the fact that there is design in the universe. Our brains are flawed. They are the product of a flawed nature. We even disagree about design amongst ourselves. I could take a lump of clay and turn it into a shape and actually, in my mind, see wonderful designs in it. I can hand that over to you to watch and most of you will think, well, the, uh, what is he on? We had a controversy in New York over, I'm sure you read about it, about a, uh, a certain museum piece with the Virgin Mary. Well, there, there's a question of design again to the, to the African Catholic who did it. He thought it was a, is a perfectly uh, reverential melding of his uh, historical and ancestral heritage and Roman Catholicism. 
Oh, the Catholics in New York went nuts. The, ob the object of design and fine-tuning, fine-tuning to me, especially when we're talking about something that is supposed to be timeless and changeless and all-knowing, the, the idea of fine-tuning to me, to me means that it didn't really quite work out and you have to go back and review the plans. And certainly going back to review the plans is not the function of an all-knowing being. Either he would know it or he doesn't know it. It's not a question of coming back to fine-tune it. Oh, I, I don't understand what we mean by fine-tuning for life. Um, did he come back to fine-tune it because he realized that he sort of forgot that, wow, the dinosaurs have been ruling the Earth for 160 million years. i got to fine-tune this for man. So he throws a rock down on the planet, destroys the dinosaurs, and, of course, that makes room for us. Is that, a, is that a, an example of fine-tuning? Is the coming Armageddon or Apocalypse maybe another fine-tuning that we're, uh, we deserve? I don't know. But the, 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 the argument of design, to me, carries no premise because we do not even agree what design is, and we are looking at the entire universe from one tiny speck in the universe. We could conceivably see an entirely different picture if we looked at the, uni the universe from another point, uh, vantage point. What these arguments do, when we see design and first cause in the beginning, what we are seeing here is that religion has pretty much done what it has always done. Makes claims and then lets people go out and do the work. Scientists, over the last 250, 300 years, once we have recovered and, 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 and we had the Enlightenment, which, uh, as, 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 the, uh, as you know, the host Adam pointed out, during the Enlightenment, of course, the influence of religion was effectively contained. Many of the properties were taken away from the church, and it had illegally, many illegally, uh, it, it had attained. Ever since the last 250 years, we have been progressing at really a dizzying pace, and it is unsettling. But science has really done more to explain the reality we live in in just a short 250 words than religion has done in a lifetime. And I think that we should realize that every time a science comes up with a new uh, explanation or a new theory, the theologian takes that and, like a Jastro's theologian sitting on the mountain, says, see, I knew it all along. But that doesn't help and it doesn't explain. The moral argument or purpose and meaning, uh, you know, the argument about purpose and meaning I find uh, very odd because that argument would be successful. The argument that a God gives purpose and meaning, it would be successful if you accept the premise that purpose and meaning must be externally imposed. And I think that is a negative and emotionally damaging concept. It is our contention as atheists that we are the ones who are responsible for putting meaning and purpose in our lives. The human, the, the human brain is, 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 as far as we know right now, one of the greatest problem-solving tools we have. Churches routinely imprint the idea that we need externally imposed, externally imposed purpose uh, onto the minds of our children who eventually grow up to be adults, who become confused adults and run back going to religion so that religion instills in them a second time the God belief that's supposed to supply the very purpose and meaning that religion strips away from humanity in the first place. We give ourselves purpose and meaning, ladies and gentlemen. It is not an externally imposed aspect. I mean, is, is our purpose really to do God's will? Uh, 
I would, I would hardly think so. I mean, anything that a slab of talking meat can do, a god could probably do uh, much better and much more efficiently without us. And, uh, and, and, and what else would he need us? Does he need us to suffer and then die so that we can go in heaven and, and then glorify him? Well, I don't need, I do not know. And I could not answer why, conceivably, a god would have to create a race of beings to suffer, just to eventually die and worship him. Unless we presume that a god or some other conscious, self-aware force, uh, or a wise, Unless we presume that a god or some self-aware force exists, it makes no more sense to say why the universe exists than it is to say why did that note decide to spill on the floor. I think the argument of morality is one, as I began to uh, explain before, history and anthropology indicate, and they show, that moral values and religious moral values are more contingent upon the culture of the people than on the religions that impose themselves on it. Religion has always maintained a heads-I-win, tails-you-lose attitude about moral issues. In every major moral and ethical conflict, whether it be war, to support or against slavery, to support women's rights or be against them, to support or be against public education, to be to support or be against children's rights, to support or be against homosexual rights, to support or be against civil rights, religion, in a very evolutionary way, in order to guarantee his own existence, is on both sides of every issue. And religion cannot be used as having any moral objective when the ultimate decision is made by a collective humanity regardless of our religious persuasion. And I think human rights right now, and especially in the United States, is a very good example. We recently celebrated Martin Luther King Day. And of course, the clergy and all the religious were out there in front, you know, parading around for civil rights and for Dr. Martin Luther King. He was a great man. There are many reverends who are great men. There are many reverends who are not. But what I am shocked is that at the same time they parade and extol the values of human rights and civil rights, they themselves in the United States are exempt from civil rights legislation. So I ask you, where is your morality when you can parade and advocate a position that you yourself are exempt from? The construction of morality and I, I do agree with Darwinian thinking and Darwinian sociology that the construction of morality is a phenomenon of social interaction. Over a period of time, we will do what is right. We're still figuring out what's right. I think, and I think one of the greatest, greatest examples of a, of a celebration where humanity really triumphed over everything was this past New Year's Eve. It was a New Year's Eve that for a long time was approached with great gloom, and doom by many people. And, and, and let's not deny it that gloom and doom had, uh, had a lot of sources in religious apocalyptic thinking. And it even extended over into the material world with the Y2K and the computer problems, which, which were very real problems also. But what happened? What happened when New Year's Eve really came along? For those of us that were watching at home or even participating, what we saw was the first truly global celebration of our collective humanity. And it was because of the scientific thinking and the advances of science and scientific methodology that we were able to all celebrate that in a 24-hour period 
all over the world. God did not do this for us, ladies and gentlemen. We did this for ourselves. We were able to have a global celebration and record it for posterity for future generations so that a thousand years from now they can look back at us and see how we celebrated the year 2000 and those when they, when they celebrate 3000, you know, don't know what we did in the year 2000. I think this type of global togetherness is a direct result of our humanity, our ability to think, our ability to solve problems combined with critical thinking and a scientific methodology. Unfortunately, I don't see where no gods were involved. And frankly, I'm quite glad because we had a hell of a party. Thank you. Well, I still haven't heard any good reasons to think that atheism is true. Uh, I asked Ron to give us some reason to think that naturalism is true, some reason to think that nature is all there is. And he responded, well, we don't know what all there is. Well, that's exactly my point. Uh, and that's what the naturalist has to prove, is that nature is all there is. Otherwise, you're left not with atheism, but agnosticism. Uh, I would simply quote to him Hamlet's words, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy, Horatio. Uh, and unless Ron can show us that there are no uh, uh, realms of reality beyond nature, then he's failed to carry the burden of proof to show us that atheism is true. So, let's look at the arguments then that I did give for theism. My first argument was based on the origin of the universe, and Ron did not offer any refutation of my responses to his objections in his last speech. I think it is more plausible to believe that whatever begins to exist has a cause than to believe the contradictory of that statement. And we have good philosophical and scientific evidence for thinking that the universe began to exist, so it seems to me that it is very plausible to believe that the universe has a cause, which must be a timeless, changeless, immaterial, uh, and personal creator of unimaginable power. Second, I argue from the complex order in the universe that the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either law, chance, or design. And I think here Ron was confused about the argument. He's, he says... Um, but look, all of our knowledge comes from science, not from religion. Well, precisely with regard to this proof. And what modern science has discovered is that our existence as intelligent, carbon-based life is balanced on a razor's edge of incomprehensible fineness, such that if these constants were altered in any way at all, life would not exist. Uh, to get an idea of the probabilities involved here, since Ron wanted to know about what I meant by that, I'll use an illustration from John Barrow, professor of physics at University of Sussex. He says, put a red dot on a blank piece of paper and let that represent our universe. Now, alter some of these constants and quantities, tiny fractional amounts, and let that represent a new universe. If it's life-permitting, make it a red dot. If it's life-prohibiting, make it a blue dot. Now, do that again, and do it again, and do it again. And what you wind up with is a sea of blue with only a few pinpoints of red here or there. And it's exactly in that sense that I mean it when I say that a life-permitting universe is incomprehensibly improbable. Now, Ron says, but probability doesn't imply purpose or intent. But I wasn't arguing for purpose or intent. My argument is a causal argument, that one has to provide some sort of explanation 
for these finely tuned initial conditions for intelligent life. Is this just the result of chance? That's inconceivable. That would be like walking out into your driveway in the morning and finding a car parked in the driveway and saying, oh, look, what just popped into being out of nothing here in my driveway. Nobody would believe that. You would instantly recognize this as the product of intelligent design. And yet the fine-tuning present in the Big Bang is far, far more uh, intricate and delicate than the fine-tuning involved in the construction of an automobile. Ron says, but fine-tuning implies you didn't get it right the first time you had to fiddle with it. No, no, not at all. But I'm talking about our initial conditions. They're simply put in at the moment of the Big Bang and therefore cannot be explained as a result of evolution or selectionary pressures. They are simply initial conditions that we are presented with at the beginning of the universe. As we look at the universe, the impression is irresistible that the universe was designed for the existence of intelligent life to exist. And uh, this cannot be explained, as I said, on the basis of natural law because these are initial conditions. And therefore, it seems to me the most plausible explanation is design. Thirdly, I argue from the existence of objective moral values. I said if God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. And in his last speech, he agreed with that. He said, I agree with the Darwinian perspective. That means that on his view, there are no objective moral values. He said, we put meaning and purpose into our lives. We invent them as human beings. That's exactly right. On the atheistic view, there is no objective moral value. But then that means that the project of a Hitler or a Stalin is just as worthwhile as the project of a Mother Teresa or a saint. Peter Haas, in his book, Morality After Auschwitz, uh, asked the question, how is it that an entire society in Germany could have cooperated in a state-sponsored program of mass torture and genocide for over a decade without any serious opposition? Listen to his answer. Far from being contemptuous of ethics, the perpetrators acted in strict conformity with an ethic, which held that however difficult and unpleasant the task might have been, mass extermination of the Jews and gypsies was entirely justified. The Holocaust was possible only because a new ethic was in place that did not define the arrest and deportation of Jews as wrong, and in fact defined it as ethically tolerable and good. Haas goes on to point out that because of its internal coherence and consistency, the Nazi ethic could not be discredited from within. The only way that you can uh, uh, judge the Nazi ethic and say that it was wrong is by having a transcendent vantage point that transcends the socio-cultural milieu and enables you to say it is wrong to exterminate people because of their ethnic heritage or their religious beliefs. And this is exactly what the atheist lacks in his system. And that's another reason why the existence of God makes such a tremendous difference. On the atheistic view, we are simply animals. Animals are not moral agents. And the moral values and projects that we invent are purely subjective. They're socio-culturally relative. And they have no objectivity. And that leads to the sort of things like Auschwitz and the Gulag. He says, but religion has been morally deleterious in its effects. Well, I think that's a moot point, but the more deeper philosophical point is that you can't even make that judgment unless you assume that transcendent vantage point. Otherwise, how can you condemn the persons who sponsored the Crusades or the Salem witch trials if that was the meaning and purpose and values that they subjectively chose to order their lives by? In other words, to even condemn religious atrocities, you must have a transcendent anchor 
and a moral good that transcends the sociocultural values that evolve among human beings. And thus, I think all of this goes to substantiate my first premise. If God doesn't exist, then objective moral values do not exist. As Jean-Paul Sartre said, we are simply confronted with a bare, valueless fact of existence, and there is no right and no wrong. But if you believe, as I do, that there are objective moral values, that the Holocaust was wrong, that the Crusades were wrong, and so forth, then you will agree with me that God exists. I presented the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Again, the three facts that are accepted by the majority of New Testament critics have never been disputed in tonight's debate, and we've heard no counter-explanation of a plausible sort that naturalism might offer for these facts. Finally, the immediate experience of God. My point here is simply this. God, to me, is a living reality. In the absence of some overwhelming arguments for atheism, why should I deny my experience and think that I'm deluded or illusory. In the absence of any arguments for atheism, it seems to me I'm perfectly rational and within my rights to go on believing in the God who is real to me in my experience. And that's why it's important that Ron give us some sort of positive case for why he thinks that God does not exist. I guess to use a religious phrase, we can go from now to doomsday discussing the origins of the universe. And I think we will not to agree to disagree. Science is doing its job, and I think eventually, you know, hopefully that maybe we will have an answer. There is also the possibility we may never have an answer. But I do not think that at all tonight, Dr. Craig has demonstrated that the origins of the universe have a conscious, transcendent, and material beginning. Uh, as far as the complex order of the universe, I don't disagree that the universe is finely tuned to sustain the life that it is, that it has in it. Uh, it is a delicate balance, and any change of the cause and effects of the process of nature could very well uh, result in a universe vastly different than the one that we're in now. However, he has not demonstrated anything other than rhetoric than to say that that complex order comes again from a self-aware, uh, invisible, non-human life form who specifically cares about our well-being. Again, he goes to the fine-tuning argument. Let's go back a little bit to being well-knowing. My question would be then, what would be the purpose of having complete knowledge? If you had the knowledge of all that there was, all that there is now, and all that there is to come, what would be your point? I don't see any. You would be incapable. It would be a decisionless existence. You would be static. Total knowledge solves nothing. It is the interaction between us and the search for knowledge that gives us meaning, that gives us a purpose. Uh, I know he, Dr. Craig has mentioned that uh, two or three times tonight. I have ignored the resurrection theories of Jesus. And I've done that for a purpose because I don't feel, and I do not believe that has anything to do with the topic of the existence of God. We are talking, this is an extraneous topic of God's ability to interact with people, produce infants, and then a storyline about that infant. But an empty tomb, uh, to me, uh, proves the existence of a resurrection uh, about as much as an empty bed proves that someone slept in it. It doesn't make any sense. And as far as, again, as the apostle seeing him, 
Uh, there is a, such a thing that when something you have lived for all your life, or at least dedicated the last three years of your life for, utterly, completely collapses in chaos as what occurred at that time, which would be, of course, the hypothetical trial and the death of Jesus, uh, I would think that you would come up with all sorts of ideas to try and preserve and save face in, the, in, in what appears to be utter disgrace. And we had a case of uh, mass hysteria in Tennessee just recently over a phony uh, aroma, an aroma that sent 170 teachers and school children home sick and which no one found any evidence of any smell or any uh, pathogen in the air or in the water. Um, and I think when you have a movement, when you're dedicated to a movement and it totally collapses, you're, you're going to try and justify all sorts of reasons to, to, to come along and, and get away from it. The, argue, the argument of personal experience. Now, that this is one that has really, really troubled me as an atheist. I was a theist for 30, 35 years. I tried mightily, along with many other non-believers, to have this personal experience that other believers tell us about. It didn't happen. Is that my fault? Well, many theologians would say it is. We have a character flaw. Uh, at no time at all do they ever blame their God for not giving us the prod, apparently, that they're getting. And it'd be nice, you know, if he was an equal opportunity prodder, but that doesn't seem to be the case. <laughs> but the idea of a personal relationship, if I were to say to Dr. Craig, Dr. Craig, I'd like you to have a personal relationship with Tom. However, this relationship is going to have some conditions to it. You can never meet Tom. I can never personally introduce you to Tom. Um, you will not read anything that Tom wrote. You do not know what Tom looks like. However, I will give you some stories by people who knew people who knew Tom. <laughs> and based on that, we're supposed to have a personal relationship. I'm sorry, that is extremely empty. I would prefer to have a personal relationship with people, not an immaterial, uh, changeless timeless uh, being. And as far as human beings being animals, well, we are a part of nature, and we are animals. And it is because there is no God that we are special. It is because we have the ability to assess the past, to, pl to, pr to project the future, to actually plan, to cooperate, makes us a very special animal. But we are animals nonetheless. And any ideas we have will dissipate when the brain is removed. All of our interactions, all of our thoughts, all of our ideas, all of our abstract concepts that Dr. Craig talks about are products of chemical interactions in our brains and interactions between us. And this is, it is this conflict between us that leads to greater understanding and greater knowledge. So, as far as is atheism true? Yes. Atheism is true by default because the, the theist has come along, added an affectation to nature, and then claims I have to disprove this unneeded existence. Well, he hasn't proved that that existence is needed other than living and recognizing in a natural world. Nature is all we know, but that doesn't mean that we know all about nature. And objective moral values are difficult, diff, uh, are difficult to understand. And moral values are difficult to understand. And just because human beings are in the process of developing these moral values 
doesn't mean we're right all the time. Yes, we do make mistakes. There are going to be our Hitlers. There are going to be our Torquemadas. There are going to be our Pope Innocents. And there are going to be our Stalins. And as when humanity binds together and we put our ideological differences aside and we work as if there is no God, that is when we stop these aberrations that occur in our search for morality. Once again, atheism is all that we have. You deal with it or you die. Thank you. In my final speech, I'd like to draw together some of the threads in the debate and try to draw some conclusions. First, have we seen any good reasons tonight to think that atheism is true? Well, by Ron's own admission, we have not. There's no positive evidence that atheism is true, that naturalism is true. Ron has only tried to claim that he wins by default. But that violates the argument that he offered in his very first speech, namely that the failure to prove a proposition true is not itself proof that that proposition is false. In order for Ron to maintain that naturalism is true, he has to maintain, or to prove rather that it's true, he has to show that nature is all there is. And yet he admits we don't even know all about nature. So how can he be confident that there is no supernature? How does he know that naturalism is all there is? William James once said that we may be in the universe as dogs and cats are in our libraries, seeing the books and hearing the conversation, but having no inkling of the meaning of it all. And it seems to me that it's enormously presumptuous on the part of the atheist to simply assume that nature is all there is. I gave good reasons, I think, to think that there is more than just nature, that there is a transcendent creator and designer of the universe who is the source of objective moral values. First, I argued on the basis of the origin of the universe, and all Ron could say in his last speech was, well, we agree to disagree. But I'm not going to let him off the hook that easily. No, no. In order to disagree with the argument, you have to either show an invalidity in my logic, or you have to show that one of the premises is false. And apart from that, the conclusion follows because these are simply initial conditions that are put in at the beginning. They're not naturally necessary. Nor can it be by chance because the odds of this occurring are incomprehensibly tiny. And therefore the only alternative left for this kind of intricate complexity is design. So unless you can think of some third, fourth alternative to law, chance, or design, again, the argument is sound. I thirdly argued that God is the best explanation for the existence of objective moral values. In his last speech, says, well, we, Ron says, we are animals, but we are special. Well, that's an example of speciesism, uh, akin to racism, thinking that your own species is somehow special and important. And on the evolutionary atheistic scenario, there's just no reason to think that's true. Uh, a race of alien beings who came to Earth who were as superior to us as we are to pigs and cows, would find no reason to treat us as being special. Uh, they might use us for laboring animals or food in the same way that we use cows and other lower animals. So that this sort of speciesism is groundless on an atheistic view. If you do agree that human beings are special, as I do, then you should believe in the existence of God. Fourth, the resurrection of Jesus. He said, I refuse to argue about this because it's not relevant to God's existence. Well, yes, it is relevant in this way. It's an argument for God from miracles. It's saying that here is an example of a historical miracle that must have a supernatural cause, so it's certainly relevant. 
The empty tomb is important because the question is, how did it get that way? How did it become empty? Disciples stole the body? Women went to the wrong tomb? All of these old theories have been refuted by contemporary scholarship. He says, well, maybe the disciples made up the resurrection appearances to save face. You don't go to your death uh, because of some lie that you made up that you think was a lie. No scholar today holds that these original disciples were liars and hoaxers. No one who reads the New Testament can deny that they sincerely believe these things. So I don't see any better explanation than the one that these men themselves gave, namely that God had raised Jesus from the dead, and that entails that God exists. Finally, what about the immediate experience of God? Uh, all I want to say here is that I myself wasn't raised in a Christian home. I wasn't a, a, a Christian believer until I was 16 years of age. And then I began to ask the big questions in life about the meaning to my existence, and I began to read the New Testament. And as I read the teachings of Jesus, I sensed in them a ring of truth and an authenticity that I'd never met before. And after about six months of the most agonizing soul-searching, I just came to the end of my rope and cried out to God and yielded my life to Him. And God became in that moment an immediate reality in my life. And I believe that you can find that same reality if you will search for Him on His terms with an open heart and an open mind. Thank you very much. Thank you. First of all, clarify that what I said was nature is all we know, not that nature is all there is. I don't know if that is all there is to nature, and certainly not science. And I did say that we are special as animals, but I did not say that we are superior as animals. Uh, if one of us were to take off all our clothes and go live in the ocean for a few days, we'll see who's superior in that environment. But we are special, we, and we, we do have the ability to think, and we have the ability to tackle problems and solve, and solve problems in such a way that our fellow cohabitants, who we should be taking care of better than we do, do not have. And maybe that, in fact, makes us special. At least, it makes us different. Uh, I, still agree, I still disagree with Dr. Craig, and I think the issue of Jesus is irrelevant to the topic at hand, and that's, a, that's another debate whether or not the, Jesus, uh, the existence of Jesus is historical. But one thing we must remember here is that if creation did not happen, and that really the Big Bang Theory, the evolution of man, is more appropriate than the creation story, we have to realize that the Jesus story relies on the fall of man. If man did not fall, according to Genesis, then, of course, the reason for Jesus' role in Christian theology is moot. I'll admit that Dr. Craig presented some persuasive arguments that theism may very well be, in the mind of the theist, plausible and reasonable. But, of course, and it may even be explanatory, uh, but they are, they, that does not make them true. Um, First of all, he also had a complete failure to undermine my position that nature is, in fact, all around us. Uh, I don't understand because theism, to me, undermines reality. It takes away the importance of nature. And, and I would like to know why I should have to undermine nature in order to satisfy his argument. Western theism, for all its claim to authority, pomp, and circumstance, circumstances, has, in fact, done that undermine uh, reality. It has essentially accomplished nothing for mankind other than to enslave our minds and our hearts. It has raped our spirits, controlled our thoughts, stolen our property, scattered our families, and destroyed or at least attempted to destroy every competing culture and its attendant faith structure. And in the process has created a class of undeservedly uh, privileged men who grow fat and lazy on the backs of the uneducated. 
Humanity, as I explained in my argument against objective morals, humanity has only just begun to show real progress in the area of morals. When we transcend our national boundaries, when we transcend our cultural requirements, and when we transcend our religious limitations, that's when true moral progress is made. And I think the, the enlightenment by stopping religious control of society has shown that that is a very real viability. Um, it was atheism, it was those who challenged the prevailing thought uh, that came up with newspapers, penny newspapers, paperbacks, a reproduction of classic literature for the masses. It was uh, atheism and free thought that removed access to art and education from the domain of the privileged and the pious. It was free thought that fought for free public education, free thinking that led really to the abolishment of child labor and to the promotion of women's rights, animal rights, and civil rights. Advances in medicine and science have all been attributed to the scientific method, not to prayer. Your doctor did not pray you a medicine. He gave you a medicine that was a product of human ingenuity and research. And to me, there must be something to atheism. When the last two important people, uh, Thomas Edison was named Man of the Millennium by Life Magazine, an atheist. Albert Einstein was named Man of the Century an atheist. Freedom of conscience and its legal cousin, freedom of worship, is a human concept and a free thought concept, not one that springs from theism and absolutism. And all has not been a bed of roses. We still have wars, we still have the poor, the destitute, the homeless, the forgotten elderly, and we're still rude to one another. And we don't think things, think things through. We still fail to realize that we're not the center of attention to anyone except ourselves. We are finite creatures with finite brains, and here I agree with the theist, we are truly imperfect creatures, capable of horror and as well as wonder. I don't claim that atheism is a better morality. It doesn't provide, it doesn't guarantee happiness, and it doesn't guarantee that we'll all treat each other gently. But it provides, what I believe, a clearer path so that we can develop a system of objective moral values ethics and goals that will transcend our nationalism, transcend our race, transcend our religious beliefs, and bring us more together singly as a human race, one species on this planet. Because if we don't focus on reality, if we don't focus on nature as it is, we will die as a species. And the universe, frankly, Scarlet, will not give a damn. Thank you.